Well, good evening. I'm trying to get my video on here. Give me just one second. Here we go. Sorry about that. I made y'all so little I couldn't find you. Here we go. Good evening, everybody. I'm ready for Wednesday night with the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, we are tonight going to be discussing King Ahab in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. And wow, he was a doozy. Um, Brother Moss did an excellent job with his good, the bad, the ugly already this week, and I really enjoyed that. And tonight we're going to do a follow-up with someone who's even uglier. But there's a surprise twist. So don't don't sit back and think, oh, I know everything I'm, I'm supposed to know about Ahab. Um, but there's there's a lot in here. Also, when you read about Ahab, and as we do this series, we're thinking about what, why did they write this? What are we supposed to learn from this? And, and I've read through it two or three times. And I was kind of like, okay, there's, there's some really big gems in here. Other than the fact that Ahab, which most of the time when you hear of Ahab, it's Ahab and Jezebel together. They were pretty terrible. But, so what gems could be found from them? So, come with me and let's go find out. We are going to do a little reading and I'm going to do a little storytelling. And we're going to start with Ahab was the son of Omri. Omri was pretty terrible as well. He is actually the king that built the city of Samaria. We hear a lot about the Samaritan woman in the New Testament. Uh, we know, we read a lot about Samaria. So Ahab's dad is the one that purchased the hill called Samaria and actually built the city of Samaria. So when Ahab becomes king, the city of Samaria is, is the capital city of Israel. It's a big deal. It's this new, vibrant city. And so that's where we, we find ourselves with Ahab. But it says, it starts off, the story tells you the ending at the beginning. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down in worship to Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. So we have a new king, a new city his dad built. And Ahab, one of the first things he does, he marries Jezebel and he he puts up this temple to Baal in Samaria, in the new city, the city everyone's going to want to come to. Then he went further and set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the kings of Israel before him. So he really, he really provoked and prodded and continually did evil. So in 1 Kings chapter 16, we see that Elijah steps into the picture, who was from Tishbe in Gilead. He comes to King Ahab and he tells him there's going to be a three-year 
drought. Well, actually, he didn't say three years. He just tells him for the next few years until I give the word. We know there's three years because we've read the story, but King Ahab doesn't. So uh, the prophet Elijah comes to Ahab and he says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. So we see this happen. We see this drought begin. And the story kind of jumps back and forth between Ahab and Elijah and the different things that God is doing during this horrible, wicked time. So we're going to to see a little bit of the good in this story. So then in chapter 17, it says, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by the Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. So he tells Elijah where to go and where to hide because he's, he's prophesied this drought it's begun, and now he needs to hide before uh, before somebody finds him because, because Ahab considers Elijah one of his worst enemies. So think Old West, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and Elijah is Ahab's sworn enemy. They're the two that would stand off in the street for their shootout in the Old West. That's Ahab views Elijah that way. This is his enemy. His old enemy. You'll even hear some language like that later on. It almost sounds like it comes out of a Western. So God gives Elijah a place to hide. And then he tells him, you're going to drink from the brook, Kareth, and you're going to eat what the ravens bring for you. The ravens, the scavengers, what the scavengers bring for you. For I have commanded them to bring you food. So we see a miracle right off. We see the miracle, which wouldn't be considered. We mainly, mainly think of miracles as positive, but we see this miracle where God says, I'm bringing this drought. But technically droughts happen. So if you're not serving God, you don't believe in God, you could think, why well, it's just a dry season. But then we see the miracle of these ravens bringing food to Elijah. So that's our first miracle. Then the brook dries up. So we've been in a drought long enough for the brook to dry up. Things are bad. And the Lord speaks to Elijah again. He says, now I want you to go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon, which is where I believe Jezebel's from, her family. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. Elijah arrives. He he sees this widow gathering sticks. And he says, oh, would you bring me a little cup of water? And she's she says, okay. She turns to bring him the cup of water. And he goes, actually, could you bring me just a little, like a little cake of food? Just, I'm really hungry. And she says, we're, this, I'm gathering sticks. My son and I are going to have our last meal and we're going to die. There's no other food for us here. Well, God sent him there. So he tells him, just do as I tell you. Everything will be okay. Well, she does it. She, she makes him a little cake. He eats it. And then in verse 14 of chapter 17, we see, For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and crops grow again. So now we see a miracle again happening during this horrible, wicked time. The miracle of never-ending food for this woman and her son. But then a few verses later, her son dies and she goes to the prophet and she's like, Why did you sustain my life just for my son to die? And Elijah prays over the boy, and he's raised from the dead. So we have another miracle. Just just all of this is just crammed right in the middle of this horrible, bad, bad, bad. You have this these miracles that are crammed in there. And we hear a lot about these miracles, but we may not associate them with the type, the time that it was. 
Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab and tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah starts traveling towards Ahab and he meets up with Obadiah, who works for Ahab. And in their dialogue, we find out that Obadiah has been, has at some point in this time of wickedness, he has hidden a hundred prophets of God from Jezebel when she was trying to kill all the prophets of God. So there's another miracle. And then a little later in the passages, we read that God reveals to Elijah that he has preserved 7,000 people that would not bow to Baal. So, so we see again, and it starts to see little snippets of, look, of little things God is doing. They're big things in little verses all throughout this story. So now comes one of, there are a few, but one of the standoffs. So they're in the middle, think of in the middle of the town, like, so here we go. He, Elijah tells Ahab, we're going to go to Mount Carmel and you bring four, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned not just them. He summons all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Now, whether or not all the people of Israel showed up, we don't know, but there was quite a crowd on this mountain to see the standoff between Ahab and his sworn enemy, Elijah. Many of you know the story. If you don't, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18. So the, the prophets of, of Baal and, um, and these Asherah prophets come out. They, they build their they build their altar. They, they sacrifice their stuff. Nothing happens. Elijah's making fun of them. He's like, oh, you're, you're, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. He gets really crass, and he is just really mocking them. The, the, the prophets get so upset, they begin to cut themselves and throw themselves all on the altar, and, and nothing happens. And this goes on and on and on and on. And finally, Elijah says, enough. It's my turn. And so we'll pick up at chapter 18, verse 36. At the, at the usual, oh, before he prays, which is this part, he has them dig trenches around his altar. They pour water on three times, soaking up the altar, soaking up the meat. And we also have to remember God hasn't sent rain. So he has, you have people starving, crops are dying, people don't have water. And here's this prophet wasting water, putting it, filling up the trenches with water, soaking everything with water in front of all these people that are desperate for water. It's not like he just got the water hose and pushed it out there. Somebody had to bring that water from somewhere that had been stored, that had been, there, there was no water to just go grab. This was a big deal. So... After all that happens, he says, At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. Now, the other prophets have been praying all day, and they've been cutting themselves, and they've been weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and doing the whole thing. And this is what Elijah prays. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, provide today, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. 
And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. So we have this, what we consider this massive miracle, this fire coming down from, from heaven, licking up all the water in front of these people who, if you read for the last few kings of Israel, they, they have been, some of these people have probably been raised in idol worship. They have no clue who this God is. They, they've heard about him. There are people that serve, but, but it has not been the end thing. It has not been in vogue to serve this God for years. And hear this God that they've heard about from their ancestors, but many of them haven't served and haven't seen do anything, does this in front of them. And they bow to the ground. They, they cry out. They acknowledge that he is God. And again, a miracle of fire from heaven. So Elijah won this one. And then he, he goes up onto the mountain. He tells Ahab, rain is coming. And he says, go eat something because rain is coming. And so he goes on the mountain, he prays, I believe seven times the servant checks. And finally he says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And then Elijah and his servant, they have to run. They take off running. It says that Elijah ran faster with the help of God than, um, than Ahab's chariots to Jezreel. And so you have this, this another unique thing God is showing everyone, this is my prophet, look at him run. <laughs> Really, he ran faster than um, Ahab's chariot and horses could run because of the rain that was coming. When rain hits dry parched land, you have mudslides, you have flooding, lots of things happening. They needed to run. So when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, just as you killed them. Then there's a huge second section of, of Elijah going into hiding. He also um, meets up with Elisha, who um, will train under him, and, and all these things happen. But we're not talking about Elijah tonight. We're talking about Ahab, because something happens in the story right here. Ahab has been ugly, 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 ugly. The prophets have been in hiding. We know because Obadiah has hid a hundred prophets at different times. Elijah thinks they're all, most of them are dead. You see in other parts of this, this same passage where he says, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, I have preserved 7,000 people who have never bowed to Baal. I have preserved these people who have stayed faithful to me. And, and yet... We see Elijah, I mean, Ahab and Jezebel have just been evil and wicked. And all the prophets are in hiding. And something, there's a twist in the story. Something happens here in 1 Kings chapter 20. After the, the showdown on Mount Carmel, after that showdown, we don't see prophets in hiding. See, he called all of Israel. I don't know if what that meant. I don't know if that was everybody in the area, if they took days and demanded that people come. But a huge part of Israel saw that miracle. They saw what happened and they fell down and they acknowledged that, that this God of Elijah, this is the real true God. So something changes in all of Israel. We have, we have a twist here in the story because the prophets have been murdered. The prophets have been in hiding. People that didn't worship Baal have been slaughtered, except for, and then God has protected 7,000 of them. And now we have just this, what looks to be a random story inside the story. And so I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to kind of walk you through it a little bit at a time. Um, so First Kings chapter 20. So it says, about that time, King Ben-Hadad of Aram 
comes in with his army and he besieges Samaria. So remember, this is their new awesome city, the capital of Israel. This is where Ahab is presiding at the time and the city is besieged. So a message is sent from Ben-Hadad to Ahab and this is what it says. Your silver and gold are mine and so are your wives and the best of your children. The best of your, that one got me as a mom. I was just going, what do you mean the best of my children? Who's the best of my children? Anyway, that one got me. You can all figure that one out on your own. I guess the best and brightest, I don't know, but he wanted the best of your children. And Ahab is surrounded. They've been in, they're, they're being besieged. And he says, all right, my Lord, the King, all I have is yours. I, this seems a little flippant to me, but, but he just, he just gives it to, fine. You can have it all. Just, just leave us alone or whatever you want. Well, what happens to when, when a bully or an enemy says they want something and you're like, sure. Well, then it's never enough, is it? So then Ben-Hadad sends another message. And says, I've already demanded that you give me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But you know what? About this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials. We're going to search your palace and the homes of all of your people. And we're going to take everything you consider valuable. So at this point, Ahab summons the elders of the land. Which is amazing to me. That he would even have that first correspondent without having any discussion with the elders. But now he brings in the elders. And he's like, oh. Uh, this affects more than me. This is affects everybody. What do you guys think we should do? Well, he's already he's already you know said I'll, I will I will acquiesce to this first demand. And the elders say, oh, don't give in to any more demands. Uh, and so Ahab sends the message back. Says, I'll give you everything you asked for the first time, but I cannot accept this last demand of yours. So I'm assuming that when he said you can have all my wives, that was Jezebel too. And maybe she didn't know about this because Jezebel had a lot to say about a lot of stuff, which you'll find out later. But he was just going to give her over too, which is, which I don't think she would have handled that very well. But that's not our message tonight. So when he says, I can't accept this second demand of yours, Benadad says, may the God strike me and kill me if there remains enough dust for, from Samaria to provide a handful for each of my soldiers tomorrow. I mean, I'm coming in to decimate everybody tomorrow. There won't even be dust of Samaria left with this city. And so Ahab does make a pretty, a pretty good remark here, kind of a um, pretty pithy. He said, a warrior putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who has already won. So he, you can see here, he's getting kind of sick of, of Ben-Hadad. When his reply reaches Ben-Hadad, the kings were in, all the kings that had gathered were drinking in their tents. Ben-Hadad loses it and he's like, prepare to attack. And so they all get ready and prepare to attack the city. This is the twist in the story. Then a certain prophet came to King Ahab of Israel and told him, this is what the Lord says. Do you see all these enemy forces? Today I will hand them all over to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is a refer to a prophet in hiding. A prophet walks into wherever King Ahab is and he gets is granted the opportunity to come in and speak to the king. This is not so before. If you read with, with even with Elijah and the other prophets, if they came anywhere near the king or, or, or Jezebel, they would kill him. So something has shifted since Mount Carmel. Now you have a prophet who is free to walk in and address King Ahab. And then 
Ahab asks, how will he do it? And the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The troops of the provincial commanders will do it. Should we attack first? Ahab asks. What? Ahab is listening to this prophet. Not only did the prophet walk in and talk to the king, but the king's like, oh, really? How's this God? How's God going to do this? Something has changed in Ahab. Mount Carmel did a little work on Ahab, too, when that happened. He was paying close attention. And so he didn't kick him out. He didn't kill him. He didn't say, who is this God? We worship Baal. He's like, oh, how's he going to do it? Should we attack first? He believes the prophet. Yes, the prophet answered. So what does Ahab, the great, evil, wicked Ahab that doesn't believe in this God, that only worships Baal? He obeys. He musters the troops of the 232 provincial commanders. Then he called out the rest of the army of Israel, some 7,000 men. Then they, they rush out, and, and Ben-Hadad and their, their um, kings had drunk themselves into a stupor in their tents, and their reports start coming in there. Some troops come out of Samaria. There's not very many troops compared to uh, Ben-Hadad's group. And he's like, well, just take them alive. Whether they've come for peace or war, I don't care. Take them as prisoners. But the Israelites killed every Aramean opponent that came after them. And suddenly the whole army panicked and ran. And the Israelites destroyed many of their horses and their chariots, and they slaughtered the Arameans. Um, and the king and King Ben-Hadad and a few others get away. And afterwards, we have this prophet again. The prophet said to King Ahab, get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now for the king of Aram will come back next spring. So here we have got this King Ahab who has been horrible and wicked and, and done all these awful things in the sight of God. I'm not even sure he believed in God. If you go back and read about his, his dad and his grandfather and the people that the kings before him that were just horrible. And now he obviously believes that in the existence of this God, and he knows that he'll do what he says he's do, and he seems to be pretty willing to listen to the prophets and obey, which is fascinating. So we've had a twist in the story, and now he's being told, get ready, they're coming back next spring. So after their defeat, Ben-Hadad's officers said to him, the Israelite gods are, they're the gods of the hills. That's why they won, but we can beat them easily on the plains. Only this time replace the kings with field commanders. Recruit another army like the one you lost. Give us the same number of horses, chariots, and men, and we will fight against them on the plains. And there's no doubt we will beat them. So King Ben-Hadad did as they suggested. They were sore losers. They were not interested in being whooped by these Israelites. So the following spring, he called up the Aramean army and marched out against Israel. And this time it was at Aphek. So Israel's ready. They mustered their armies. They got their supply lines set and they march out to battle. But the scripture says the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. Here we go again. Then the man of God went to the king of Israel and said, this is what the Lord says. The Arameans have said, the Lord is the God of the hills and not of the plains. So I will defeat this vast army for you. Then again, you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord is over and over trying to prove to Ahab that he is God. He is revealing himself to Ahab, to this wicked king. He's giving him a chance and he's revealing himself to him. The two armies camped opposite each other for seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle began. 
The Israelites killed 100,000 Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest fled into the town of Aphek, but the wall fell on them and killed another 27,000. Ben-Hadad fled into the town and hid in a secret room. His officers come to him. They're all freaking out. There was no way they could lose, and they have just been slaughtered. He said, they, so that his advisors come to him and officers to say, we've heard these kings of Israel are merciful. So, so let's humble ourselves. Let's put on burlap and, and, and put ropes on our heads. Let's surrender, and then maybe he'll let you live. This is the, this is the guy, let's remember back that, that last year, he said he was going to take all his wives, the best of his kids, his silver, his gold. Then he was going to wipe out everything that was valuable to them. This is not a nice guy. This guy is wicked and he has been set on not just taking over, but annihilating Ahab and all of the Israelites. So they go before him and they, they go before and the servants and the officers come out and they say, we're so sorry, please let the king live. We repent. And Ahab says, oh, is he alive? He is my brother. The men, they thought, oh, this is a good sign. And they, they quickly picked the scriptures. They picked up on the words. Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. King Ahab says, oh, go get him. And when Ben-Hadad arrived, Ahab invited him up into his chariot. Then he says, I will give back the towns my father took from your father, and you may establish places of trade in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will release you under these conditions. So they made a note. Oh, I'm sorry. Ben-Hadad starts throwing out all these wonderful things he's going to do. And Ahab says, I will release you under these conditions. So they made a treaty, and Ben-Hadad was set free. This is the same guy that was going to, there wasn't going to be dust left of them. And he's like, oh yeah, I trust you. Let's make a treaty. You're my brother. So God sends another prophet. And this says that meanwhile, the Lord instructed one of the group of prophets to a man from one of them. So, so again, we have groups of prophets in the land. We've had that change. These people aren't living in fear. They're, they're out, they're out and about. And, Another prophet comes and has someone kind of beat him up. And he comes and as the king passes by, he, he's got a bandage on his eye and he's got dirt all on his face and he's totally in disguise. And he calls out to the king and he says, Sir, I was in the thick of battle and suddenly a man brought me a prisoner. He said, Guard this man. If for any reason he gets away, you will either die or pay a fine of 75 pounds of, of silver. He says, Well, I was distracted. I was taking care of something else and the prisoner got away. And the king says, well, you brought this judgment on yourself. Then the prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says, because you spared the man I said must be destroyed. Now you must die in his place and your people will die instead of his people. And now we're going to see another twist in the story. So remember, we had ugly, wicked, hateful, mean, awful king. Then Carmel happens and now he's listening a little bit. He believes that there's this God. God keeps trying to reveal himself to him. And the prophets are able to come and obviously talk to him and move about a little bit. But he doesn't believe in him enough to actually obey him all the way. He's still going to do things his way. He's in charge, not God. So when he gets reprimanded by the prophet, 
Verse 43 says, So the king of Israel went home to Samaria angry and sullen. And this is the next twist. So let's say phase one, angry Ahab. Phase two is listening Ahab. Phase three is angry, sullen, pouty Ahab. Now this is how I've always thought of Ahab. Is I would I would call him a weenie. Obviously he's he's not a weenie. Um, once you know I wouldn't want to call him that. He's um, but he's angry and sullen and pouty and just ugh, it just that's how I always think of him. But actually he really doesn't seem this way until what we're calling phase three, angry and sullen Ahab. So he comes back and then and and that's how it leaves him. He's angry and he's sullen and he goes home. And he won this battle. Everybody would be celebrating, and he's pouting in his chariot. So he goes home, and here's pouty Ahab. And we, and verse 21 says, Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel, who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. So this is the story of Naboth. I'm not going to read the whole thing. King Ahab is in his pouty, pouty mood. He's pouting around at home, and he's like, you know what? I want that land right by my palace because I want to make a vegetable garden because I'm miserable and I'm unhappy and I want to grow vegetables, I guess. I don't know why we want to grow vegetables, but he wants a vegetable garden. So, so pouty, Ahab, pouty Ahab is the one that wants to grow a vegetable garden. And he tells Naboth, look, I'll pay you for this. You can go buy a different field. Everything will be good. And let's just, let's just kind of make a trade. And Naboth said, this is, this is my ancestral home. God would be displeased if I sold my ancestral home. This is the land he gave to my ancestors. King Ahab could have been like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty special. But no. Hey, so here we go. We have our pattern. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. So here we have angry and sullen. We're going to call him pouty Ahab. So he goes to bed with his face to the wall and refuses to eat. This is the king of Israel. He has just come back not too long ago from a massive battle where twice God gave him the victory and he is laying in his bed facing the wall pouting because he can't have the land he wants for a vegetable garden. This is embarrassing. As we find out, Jezebel agrees, this is embarrassing. What is wrong with this man? Well, he disobeyed God and he started pouting. So instead of repenting, he pouted. Have, we ever, have you ever done that? God correct you and instead of repenting and humbling yourself, you just decide to pout. And you know when you get pouty, it affects everything in your life. Not for the good. We usually don't make good decisions when we're pouting. I know, I've pouted before. <laughs> so. What is the matter? His wife Jezebel asked. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused. Ahab told her. Oh, this blows Jezebel's brain. Head explode emoji right here. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she goes on to write letters in Ahab's name, sealed with his seal, and send them to the elders of the leaders of the town where Naboth lived and had him, had him go to a big festival and then had people lie about him. 
and he and, and, and stoned him to death. So he was killed. So she got him Naboth's vineyard. And after that happens, oh, he gets out of bed and he's, oh, he's not a pout anymore. He's so happy because because he had his he pouted enough till his wife, who he probably knew would, killed him off. Well, it's not it's not on his no blood on my head. You know, he's thinking she did it. So he's all happy. Well, that's not the way God views things. So God sends a message to Ahab. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Because then he took his land. Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they licked the blood of Naboth. This is Ahab's response. We're back. Think the old west. We're back in the middle of the town with the mom. Ahab says, so my enemy, you have found me. And Elijah's like, bring it on, buddy. Yes, Elijah answered, I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and the family of Basha, son of Ahijah. Ahijah. I'm probably saying that really wrong. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in so on Naboth's land in Jezreel. Dogs are going to eat Jezebel's body right there. The member of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. So the Lord has brought it. It is the big boom. I mean, he helped him. He has tried to reveal himself to Ahab. Ahab was listening, and then Ahab got pouty, and then he made, out of everything he did, he made a decision that just tipped God over the edge. But then we see one more shift in verse 27 of chapter 21. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went in deep mourning. It doesn't say he's pouting now. Okay, so pouty Ahab has gone. Phase four, we have a truly repentant, freaked out, Ahab. So he goes into deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. So after all of this that happened, our four stages of Ahab the fourth stage of Ahab, where Ahab is really discussed in the scripture, the last stage is him truly freaked out and truly repentant. The next part that talks about Ahab is about his death and how he dies in battle, and that God did set that up for his time of death. We don't hear, I don't know if Ahab went back to his wickedness. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture just says that he truly humbled himself before the Lord. And God listened. So what do we get out of this whole four phases of Ahab? If I can remember, we had 
wicked, evil Ahab. Then, then what do we have? Then we had listening Ahab. Then we had pouty Ahab. And then we have humble, repentant Ahab. This is the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is a huge back and forth arc we've got going on here. But what can you and I learn out of this? What God doesn't like it when we kill people off and steal their land. Yeah, well, we all could pull that one from there. But I want to point out three things really quickly that we can apply and we can really pull from this. I'm going to I'm going to follow Brother Moss and saying there are so many things you can pull out of this. So many good things even in the stories that are in, intertwined in this with Elijah. There's so much you can pull from this in your own time and God reveals to you. But tonight I'm just going to focus on three things that the God and the, the is trying to teach us through the writings here in this story. Number 1 is that God works miracles and preserves his people especially during times of great wickedness. Over and over and over again in this story, we see God preserving people and doing the miraculous to preserve those people. So during times of great wickedness, times where people are afraid, people are in hiding, things are just wicked. God works miracles over and over and over again. And he will again for you and I to protect his people, to um, to walk through things with, he didn't, didn't mean he didn't let anything bad happen to people, but he walked with people. He provided for his people. He walked with them through it. Number two, the second thing we can learn is God will work to reveal and prove himself to the wicked. God put a lot of effort in revealing himself to Ahab and to the end of the people of Israel. I mean, he could have just, he could have, instead of just hitting that little, that, um, that lamb and that sacrifice and burned that up in all the water, he could have just burned up everybody. He could have burned up the whole mountain. Then there would have been no more Ahab, no more lots of Israel that showed up. He could have just zapped them all. But he worked. He was long suffering. He was striving with them, with the wicked. So God will work to reveal himself and prove himself to the wicked. You and I should never stop praying for people. There's nobody we should give up on praying for. We should pray for our leaders. We should pray for rulers. We should pray for people we know, people we don't know. Don't ever give up praying for people. God is actively working to reveal himself to them and to prove that he is God to them. So we should never give up. And number three, no matter how awful your sin no matter how horrible your actions, if you truly humble yourself and repent, God will hear you and respond to you. He will show up. I'm going to say that again. No matter how awful your sin, no matter how horrible your actions, if you truly repent, God will hear you and respond. If he would respond to Ahab after all he had done, and as angry as God was at him, he will respond to you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to rescue and deliver you. All you have to do is humble yourself and repent. So those are our three things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Sister Erica to join me in case we have any questions. Hello. Here we go. I don't know if we have any questions. We do, actually. Um, 
why do you think God gave Ahab so many chances to repent? Well, I don't know. I'm not God, but the scripture tells us he's very long suffering, which means he's not like us. He will just, if, all through scripture, he just goes back and gives people chance after chance after chance. Because he wants you to be saved. He wants you to be right. God will strive and do everything he can to reveal himself to, to us uh, and to save us. I, someone told me one time, my dad told me growing up as a teenager, he would say, God doesn't stop forgiving. We stop asking. The enemy convinces us that God's going to stop forgiving and we should just go ahead and stop asking. But God doesn't stop being long-suffering and forgiving with us until we take our last breath. So that's about the only answer I have. You can see all through scripture, he is very long-suffering. Okay, then there's another question that says, uh, what do you think happened that caused Ahab to begin to listen? Well, God had his prophet kill off all the prophets of Baal. They couldn't do anything. And then I think if I was standing there and probably not very far from me, fire fell from the sky after a prophet prayed a little prayer and burned up everything. There's a good chance that Ahab was raised with very little teaching. I cannot say that uh, about Jehovah, about the, you know, the God of the Israelites. I, I can't say that for a fact, but his dad was pretty terrible. And his dad was very involved in idol worship and, uh, and a lot of horrible actions. And so I don't know, I don't know if there were, if, if he was taught even the ways of Jehovah, but that definitely got his attention. Um, he had fully encased himself in the worship of, of Baal which Jezebel had brought to him, but, but it got us. I would say that is what got his attention. I'm not even sure that the, he blamed the drought on the prophet. Not if you read the scripture, he didn't blame it on the God of the prophet. He blamed all of it on Elijah. Elijah was his, his mortal enemy and had done it all to him. In his mind, Elijah, it seems had all this power, but on that day, from that moment on is when we see a change, a shift in the story. So there's another question from one of our youth, Jada. She asked, um, why did Elijah still kill the priest of Baal after they admitted that the Lord is the true God? Could they have repented? The priest didn't. It didn't. The priest didn't. He killed the priest. Well, he killed the priest afterwards. But it said all the people of Israel bowed. I do not know that those prophets did. Um we do see in the Old Testament that God was a was a God of he when he brought judgment he was very 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 long suffering until he was done, which is what the Bible tells us will happen in, in the New Testament as well. And we don't like that part about God. None of us do. We don't like the part where God says these people have to be have to be killed or this has to happen or there will be judgment. None of us like it. I don't like it. You know, I, I right now I've been reading um, Isaiah and I'm going into Jeremiah. And so I balance it with the New Testament. <laughs> when I have to read about all these horrible things that are happening, I, I balance it with the New Testament because God had God. There was a time of judgment before that. But that's it can be very overwhelming for us to read the horrible things that happen because of judgment. 
these same people were slaughtering other people. These same prophets were, you know, many times were killing and sacrificing children. Um, and they were doing their own huge amount of killing. Uh, so we don't, it's hard for us to say, oh my word, he killed those prophets. We don't know how many people those prophets had killed. So there's a lot, there's parts of the story we don't know that can be very overwhelming to us. And then there's another question that says, why do you think God was so patient with Ahab? Well, I don't know. I'll have to go back to the long suffering, but it's encouraging because if he'll be that patient and long suffering with Ahab, it's like, whoa, we have a chance. You know, whenever we're struggling and we're maybe we're discouraged, we can look at that story with Ahab and say, after all he had done, the story starts with how horrible and evil and wicked he was. And the worship of these gods was not pleasant. It, horrible stuff happened. And so you have all of this he did front-loaded, and then the focus on the evil, wicked things he did. And then he he repented. Once God told him, this is what's going to happen to you, then he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, he really repented and, and humbled himself before God. And we don't see Ahab humbling himself at any point before that. He humbled himself before God. And God acknowledged that and pushed, you know, pushed the wicked off of the wicked thing, the judgment off of Ahab. So I think it's an, it's super encouraging to all of us that God would be that long suffering and would hear him. If he'll hear Ahab, it's like, OK, he'll hear anybody. Who would he not hear here? You know, um, after Ahab and Jezebel had had God's people, anyone you know served God were being slaughtered. They had killed a lot of people. So, so they weren't just, you know, they weren't just living high on the hog and, and lots of other people were suffering. They were actively persecuting, actively killing. And, and God listened to him when he humbled himself. That's huge. That's huge for all of us. Right now, there is no other questions, but do you mind uh, repeating the three points, like the focal points that you had about this Bible lesson? Yes, I can do that. I can do that. The things that we can learn is that God works miracles and preserves his people during times of wickedness. And I do want, since there's no questions, I want to elaborate on that just a little bit. I didn't go into the miracle, all of the miracles and everything that was done. If you have time to go back and I think start in first Kings chapter 16 and read through and do a slow read it's really amazing the amount of miracles that happened during that time slot. When things were, it seemed like at their worst, when wickedness was at the height, God was doing all kinds of miracles. He was doing all kinds of work and touching people and, and providing for people, his people and, and protecting them. And it's really amazing. Even the man Obadiah that had helped protect the hundred prophets, he was in the king's court. God has people in some of the most wicked places. God has his people working secretly. Um, they are working to do God's will and God is using people. And I love that. I love that even during the, in Jezebel's own court, there was a man that was secretly taking food, her and Ahab's food and feeding God's people. God will provide for his people. 
There are nuggets like that all throughout this story. Uh, number two is God will work to reveal and, and prove himself to the wicked. So think of the worst person you can think of, somebody that you really probably don't even want to go to heaven with because we all have people that we struggle you know, or, or situations. Maybe it's just somebody we've heard about in the news, and we should pray for them. God is actively working to reveal himself and prove himself to even the, those that we think are the most wicked, the most horrible, the people that can't be reached. We should never give up on people. And then number three, no matter how awful your sin is, no matter how horrible your actions, if you truly repent, God will hear you and respond. He will I have three, three more questions. Um, do you agree that there is a difference between acknowledging God and repenting? Yes. There are people that acknowledge God. I know people that acknowledge God and they don't, they're not interested in repenting. Uh, yeah. You see that throughout scripture where people will say, yes, your God is, um, is true. You even saw that with the Romans. They're like, look, sure, you can have your God. We acknowledge he's probably real, but so are all the other ones. So there is a difference between, I would say Ahab acknowledged God when the, when the prophets came to him. The two separate prophets came to him and he listened. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do, do what you say to do because I, I believe in this God. But he hadn't humbled himself. To, he hadn't repented. But he acknowledged him enough to listen to what he says. There are people that will read, you know, no scripture. They obey parts of scripture because they understand the blessing that comes with it. They acknowledge God's word. They understand if I do this, 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 and this, I will be blessed. It works. I don't understand how it works. That's what the Bible says. I'm doing it. And they don't repent. They don't live for God at all. But they know that obeying certain parts of scripture, they're blessed. So that would, yes, there is a difference between acknowledging God and humbling. That's what God said to Elijah. Ahab has truly humbled. He wasn't faking it. He truly humbled himself before the Lord. And then uh, another question says, what does high on a hog mean? Oh, high on the hog. <gasps> My Arkansas roots are coming out. Uh, it just means that uh, whenever you, you kill a hog, you eat a hog. I mean, if you got, you're high on the hog, you have lots of meat. You're not going to starve anytime soon. Things are good. When you can kill the hog and you can you can eat. That, that's what it means from my part of the world. Um, there might be other parts that it, it means something different, those colloquialisms. But high on the hog means you are living high on the hog. You are living good. Uh, you are, you're eating the fat of the land. Good things are happening. <laughs> um, the other question I have is, could Jezebel have repented? I don't know why not. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you can repent. Jezebel was, by the end, it seems Jezebel was very embarrassed of Ahab. When he got to pouty Ahab stage, she was done. She was like, aren't you the king of Israel? Like, what is wrong with you? So she liked wicked Ahab. She liked in control, wicked, doing her bidding and then doing all the other stuff she liked. She did not like pouty Ahab. And she probably didn't like repentant or humbled Ahab either, I would guess. But I, anybody can repent. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you can repent. Um, 
you know, I can't remember who it was shared the story with us. You probably know it's probably somebody in this church that had um, their husband. It is somebody in this church. Their husband received the Holy Ghost in his sleep. I can't, I have no clue who that is, but I, I've heard that story. And I think it's one of the ladies in our church uh, in Newark that their husband, they've been praying for him for a long time and he received the Holy Ghost at night. Woke up speaking in tongues. Um, as long as you're breathing, you can repent. God can fill you with Holy Ghost. Um, yes, Jezebel could have repented. I wish she would have repented. Talk about a story we would have had there. Um, but it, scripture says that Ahab was most wicked because of the things that Jezebel talk, pretty much talked him into doing. In that last little part of scripture, she was something else. So we would have, I would have loved to hear in the story, and he humbled himself before the Lord, and Jezebel did too. <laughs> but it doesn't say that. <laughs> so Jezebel did not repent as far as we know before the dogs ate her. So that was not, not a pleasant way to go. But Sister Leela said it was uh, Sister Linda Penn's husband. Sister Linda, I was going to say it was just one of the pins, one of the pen ladies, but I didn't want to mess it up if it wasn't. So, yeah. So as long as you're breathing, as long as somebody else is breathing, there is an opportunity to repent. It is never too late to repent. We can't always fix. It may be too late to fix some things. You know, Ahab couldn't bring Naboth back to life. He had to live with that but it's never too late to repent and god's never gonna say too late for you you can't repent that's not what scripture tells us god is wants us to repent wants us to come to him no matter how bad it is so and that is all the questions we have for right. now well that's okay i knew there probably wouldn't be a whole lot i felt like this is a very thorough story when i started out I was like, Ahab is such a weenie, you know, and then I got studying and I felt a little convicted and I was like, wow, he was pretty terrible. For, and I was really just thinking about his pouty stage, but, uh, but he had other, he did listen, you know, he listened, he, he listened to God and obeyed for part of his story. Uh, and he was horribly wicked and then, and then he did repent. So we see Ahab in uh, what some people would consider the good in that he was humbled himself before God. We see him in the, you know, the super ugly, which is, I would say, at that beginning stage and the pouting stage. And and I guess, I don't know if you'd call him bad, during this time where he was he was listening, but he was, he was more acknowledging God and listening and obeying, but he wasn't, wasn't repentant, wasn't interested in serving that God. He was scared of that God. He was a little worried. Oh, and I would postulate, and this is all Rachel, this is not scripture. Part of the reason he pouted was because he might have been a little worried about what God would do if he killed off Naboth. But he thought he could get away with it by pouting so that Jezebel would do it. And God didn't even blame Jezebel for it. He skipped right over Jezebel and said, you did this. Because God knew pouting is usually used to manipulate people. And I, when I read that story, I think Naboth, um, Ahab was manipulating Jezebel into killing off Naboth. I cannot prove that from scripture, but it seems like he was, but God, God knew something was going on because he didn't say Jezebel killed off Naboth. He said, you, not only did you kill him, but you robbed him. So 
So it seems to me God knew that that Naboth was using his poutiness to manipulate his very wicked wife into taking care of the situation. So don't pout. If you start pouting, stop. <laughs> Just talk about it, but don't pout about it because we make bad decisions when we are pouting and we hurt people when we pout. And it's very easy to pout. So we have to pull ourselves out of that, not hurt others, and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to end up like Ahab. I'm not going to have a pouty phase. So, well, it's 7.58, and we don't have any. Do we have any more questions? Oh, one more. Snuck in there. So what kind of king was Ahab, good, bad, or ugly? I would say he was really bad and ugly. And then he had at the end, I don't know if he turned good, but he did repent. He did humble himself. I'm, I'm combining humbling and, and repent. Um, because if he wasn't some repentant, you wouldn't be truly humbling yourself. Um, so I combined the humble and repent. So that was a good thing. But nobody, no matter how wicked they are, is usually all wicked. Because we're all made in the image of God. That's why it's so hard. And you see wicked people do good things sometimes. And you're like, what What happened? Why? They're an evil person. And then sometimes you see people you consider really good do bad things. And so I say that's his, his good part would be when he repented, humbled himself. But he was mostly ugly and bad. <laughs> But he had, he had a few shining moments there to show us that no matter how bad we are, we can repent and God will hear us. So, well, we're at 7.59, which is right at the top of the hour. And if we don't have any more questions, I think we can just say good night. Thank you all for joining us. It was good to have you. It was good to, to be on with you. If you have any questions, you need any information about anything, uh, prayer requests, baptisms, and these prayer requests are read. They're prayed over. You may not get a response like an email back, but every one of the prayer requests that comes in goes out to a prayer team and they are prayed over and we are very diligent to make sure that all the needs are put, you know, we're praying with you about those needs. Um, you can partner with us in giving and you can go. Um, we have our youth classes and our Sunday school classes, youth classes Wednesday night. Um, our Sunday school is Sunday and you can find all of that at newarkupc.info. And any of our backlog of messages, if you miss something, you want to go back and look, you can. They're there. Thank you for joining us. We love you all and hope you have a